continue the Lucky Luciano story. Ah, the Vasquez, now the jury, debated two days and then reported that it was hopelessly deadlocked seven to five for conviction. The government immediately moved for a second trial, this time in July, in the upstate city of Milan, close to the Canadian border. Gules, who arrived several weeks early, donned a gregarious and lavish manner as he toured the Malone taverns, standing to everyone. He offered everyone to free drinks. He contributed heavily to local charities, making no secrets of his gifts, and attended the major social events in the company with Malone's mayor, and other political and business leaders. Finally, they clearly raised the alarm about the corrupting influence. Squirrel's bail was revoked and he was lodged in a Malone jail cell, but not before he had made a deep impression that the economically distressed community had later told Luciano and others made a number of Malone citizens very rich. When the new trial began, the government's case was a reprise of the Scaragos trial and defence too was almost identical. With the jury informed whether convicted or not, scholars intended to do his duty as American citizen and pay over to the treasury the hundred thousand dollars he had offered. The jury deliberated two days, had even the jury, but this time it found Scholars was not guilty said the foreman, Lord Chaplin, the director of the New York State Daily Man's League. Luciano said, We fear that the government utterly failed to show that he had earned so much as a nickel of tax income when we based our verdict on that belief. Federal Judge Frederick H. Bryant was outraged. He told the jury in icy tones, Your verdict is such that shakes the confidence of law-abiding people. In the integrity and truth, it will be apparent to all who have followed the evidence in the case that who have reached a verdict based on not only the evidence but some other reason. You have to go home with some satisfaction. If it is a satisfaction, then you have rendered a blow against law enforcement and given the encouragement to the people who would be flout to the law. In all probability, they will commend you. I cannot. Judge Bryant was not the only one shocked by the verdict, nor was Attorney General Cummings who called it a terrible miscarriage of justice. Back in New York, the words discussed promptly headed his underworld associates were stunned and a little shaken. For more than a year they had all been confident he would follow Capone and Gordon to the federal prison and they had all been planning and working as through it would be years before he had appeared on the streets again. They were dividing the spires, Luciano says. We were all sure that judge had to get it. We didn't think there was no way he could beat a federal tax lap. That was so solid. Maybe I was the one who helped him more than anyone else. When Dixie Davis came to me to tell me about getting the case moved out of New York, I said to him, Dixie, you're representing the biggest 
Missa since King fucking Midas. You got to get Skules to spread some loot around. He did just that, and so he bought his way out. There's a bit relaxing when Luciano said, When we knew Skules was coming back, the guy who was most worried was Bor Weinberg. Abraham Bor Weinberg was the Dutchman's senior lieutenant, the man who kept the books and knew every facet of the Skules empire. During his time of trouble, Skules had been drawing off large sums from policy protection and other racketeers to pay for his battle, and Weinberg had begun to worry that the empire might go down the drain with the ruler. Luciano says, But we to see Longy's with man over in New Jersey. There was lots of tears together, and I asked him to help him out. Longy listened to him. And then he brought Bo over to see me for a private meet near Grand's tomb up on Riverside Drive. Luciano listened to Weinsberg's proposal with considerable interest. Weinberg! Yes. Lots. This together. You see, that's what Lexi didn't know. That we'd pay the jewelry. And that we'd keep him on his feet. And try to get him out. But it was hard. The hard thing to do with Lansky. Lansky was also effing up with tax evasion. Ever since Al Capone came down with tax evasion, all of us were a bit really about the RLS, because they're the only motherfuckers that could bring us down. And uh, Hersey, come here, come here, come here, doggy. Come, come, Hersey, come, come, Hersey. Come on, Hersey. Come on, Hersey, come on. Sorry for that interruption, it's Hershey, she's eating all the cat food. They're coming here. So, like Luciano, I say, would be years before he appeared on the streets again. They were dividing the spoils. Luciano says, we are sure that judge had to get it. We did think there was no way he could beat a federal tax lab. That was too fucking solid. Maybe I was the one who helped him more than anybody else. When Dixie Davis came to tell me about getting the case moved out of New York, I said, Dixie, you only said the biggest misses since King Matisse. You got to get scholars to spread some loot around. He did just that. So he bought his way out. A bit reaction when we knew Scholes was coming back. The guy was most worried was Bo Weinberg. Abraham Bo Weinberg was the Dutchman's senior lieutenant, the man who kept the books who knew every facet of the Scholes empire. During his time of trouble, Scholes had been drawing off large sums for policy protection and other lackeys to pay from his battle, and Weinberg had begun to worry that the empire might go down the drain with the ruler. Bo went to see Longy Willman over in Jersey. There are lots of tears together, asked him to help him out. 
Longy listened to him and then he brought Bo over to see me for a private meeting at Glant's tomb up in Liverside Drive. Luciana listened to Weinsberg's proposal with considerable interest. Weinsberg offered to reveal all of school's interest and turned them over the empire over to intacto Luciano's Wisman and their allies, who he knew were already making moves in the direction. Sorry, I thought the recorder was going off. The fucking man. That direction was sweating and falling. He knew we were already making moves in direction. The set falling down off his face called March Day. On 1934, Weinberg explained to Luciano that he wanted to prevent the destruction of the Empire by a war over its control. All he wanted to do was continue as its overseer and receive his current 15% of the total take. Luciana quickly called a meeting at World of Towers of himself, Wilsman, Andinos, Costello, Lansky, Levski, Lucchese and Genovese. I explained Weinberg's deal and told them I felt like a grave lover in a way. Here we was talking about cutting up Scales and he wasn't even in the fucking can yet. Then we got down to cases, the responsibility for breaking up Scully's territory had been mine because that's the way everybody wanted it. In his division, Luciana gave policy and gambling to Costello, Lansky, Likato, Andonis, Leston Rakis, Dulevsky and Lucchese, and well as other enforcement operators, Wilman received the Jersey operations after promising to split them with Moretti. Luciano says, All the time we was working up the business, I could see Vito looking at me like a hungry fucking pig. So I said to him, Vito, what part do you think you ought to have? Vito, the son of a bitch, looked at me with his fucking big mouth open and was expecting me to tell him, but when I asked him, he was too fucking surprised to answer, so I said, Maybe you like it all, wouldn't you, you greedy bastard? At that minute, you could have heard a pin drop on the plush log in my apartment at the towers. The place turned to ice. Nobody said a word for a couple of minutes. Finally, I broke it up and I said to Vito, I want this to teach you a lesson. Someday if you stop being so fucking greedy, I'm going to fucking kill you. There'll be no junk, and I mean it. Don't learn what we're doing here today by adding a new business and something to, that Colette's never fucking handled. Then I turned to Mayor Frank 
and they said, Vito goes in with you and he gets 25%. You got that? 25 fucking percent. You two guys split the balance. And for me, I get a piece of the top of everything. And if by some miracle he beats the lap, everything will go back to him. Everybody was happy. I didn't make no enemies. And I got mine. We made solemn vow that nobody ever knew about this meat and what happened. I knew Dutch wouldn't like it. But after all, he had to appreciate that I don't let this whole territory go down the drain through the war. Then Scholes returned to pick up the pieces. He was back more than an hour before he sensed trouble. Immediately he contacted Luciano who told him that every effort had been made to preserve his operations and only the most capable had been supervising them so they would remain intact. Luciano says, The day Scholes come to see me at the towers, Vito with me, the Dutchman was so excited, we'd be all so nice to him, that we almost started to cry. And then, I'd be damned if he didn't start to talk about this stupid fucking Catholic religion. He wanted to know what it was like to be a Catholic. Whether Vito and me ever went to the confession, if we knew what a guy had to do to switch into capitalism from being a fucking Jew. I almost fell over when he told us why he was laying low in his spare time. He was studying to be a fucking Catholic. I swear from the minute on the Dutchman spent more time on his fucking knees than he did on his feet. He told us he was sure that Christ, like any other fucking religious fucker, what would help him get through the bad 18 months and what finally got him to the acquittal. Luciano continues. It's funny, when I first started hanging around the Jewish guys like Meir and Bosky and Dutch, them old guys, Mazila and Mazelano, and lots of my friends used to beef to me about it. They always said that someday the Jews were gonna make me turn and join the syndicate. So what happens? It ain't me that turn. It's the Dutchman. That's a fucking joke. Despite his new found concern with the spiritual, Dutch Scholes managed to spend a considerable part of his time on his feet and what he saw he walked around his territory. He didn't like at all. Much of his time was now spent in New Jersey in order to avoid constant harassment directed specifically at him by the Commissioner of Valentine's Elite Unit in the Policia Department. In New Jersey his interests had been handled by Swildman, and when Dutch Scholes talked to Swildman, he came away convinced he was being threatened with a seizure. He was certain that this could not have been possible without the convenience of Paul Weinberg. Scholes set up a trap. Luciana learned that Duskolert had Swilsman home staked out to put a tail on Weinberg would have been waste of time. But despite his book, Weinberg could have been slipped one in a minute. The stakeout paid off. One warm evening in September, Weinberg's car was spot driving through Swilsman's gate. A holy car brought Duskolert when Weinberg left about an hour later, 
the Dutchman was waiting for him. Weinberg was never seen again. Luciano says, One of the boys in the steakhouse seen him murder Weinberg, and he told me about it. He said, Dutch killed Bo with his bare fucking hands. This fellow wanted me to know that Dutch Gullis had blood in his eye, but was too smart to show it to me. It was like a warning that Dutch might start his own war against all of us. It was lucky that things that Dutch never got the time to go to work on us because Tom Dewey had just been appointed special prosecutor in New York City and he had the same blood in his eye about Dutch to put him away for fucking ever. Doligada one city hall, the situation at New York District Attorney's Office had not improved. In the same election, Tamale's man, William Copeland Dodge, Luciano said, Stupid, respectable, and my man, as Jimmy Hines described him, has squeaked through thanks to the bankroll and the muscle of Tamale's underworld support. About Dodge's stupidity, Hines was right. In response to mounting pressure to something about his graft, corruption and the lackage, Dodge expanded the special grand jury, then refused to do anything about the evidence. It accumulated. The grand jury ran away, demanded that the governor, Herbert H. Lehman, name a special prosecutor if he really wanted to see the city cleaned up. Lehman, a Democrat, has said it. He offered the job to several prominent Republican lawyers, all declined, until he raised the name of Thomas E. Dooley. Early in 1935, Dooley moved into the targeted Dutch Colleges. The rumors quickly spread that Dooley was about to indict Dutch Colleges for his control of the Lester Protection Racket, that Dooley plans went further and included a murder charge that could launch Dutch in the electric fucking chair, the old Sparky. Luciano and his friends heard that Dewey had gathered evidence on a snowy March night in Albany in 1935. Scores had murdered one of his less stunted forces, Julie Modgalwiski, sometimes called Jules Martin or simply Modgalwiski, the commissioner. Some years later, Dixit, on trial for crimes of his own that would send him to jail, told the full story that Albany night, how Dutch Scholars pulled a gun in a hotel room and shot Mocha Whiskey while Davis looked on. If Dewey could do the job all well and good, but Luciano was not sure he could. Luciano said, nobody was sure he could do it, after all, look of how Dutchman beat the federal lap. An anti-gate on Dewey's office did mean it was going to be an all-out case, yeah? In God, what particularly concerned Luciano and his friends was the strategy Dutch colleagues might employ to beat the charges, especially the protection one. If Scholars believed he was certain to go for prison a long term, he would be inclined to take some of his friends with him.
Nobody's sure he could do it. After all, how did Dutchman beat the Federal Lap? What particularly? That is great. He knew what Luciano's concerns were. He knew enough about their operations, Luciano and everyone else, to do just that. Or perhaps he would make a trade for his freedom for Luciano's and the other Lacateers and reveal all he knew. And if Scolaire somehow managed to get off without saying a word, he then demand control of that had been in the past and start a war to take it. All of us were very worried. It seemed like Joe and Frank and Maya and Torreya. Torreo and a whole bunch of us spent more time having meetings than talking care of our business. And it was all about how to handle Dutch colleagues. Finally, the whole thing got settled because Albert Anastasia came to me and said that Dutch wanted to stake out to his apartment on 5th Avenue. This was supposed to be a secret, but Albert never held nothing back from me. He said that Dutch wanted to find out how easy it would be to knock off Dewey, and he offered Albert Anastasia the contract at any price. As far as Luciano was concerned, this was about the last thing anyone needed. It would be like one of his sternest precepts. We didn't kill nobody but our own guys. And if they gave us too much trouble, we never made a hit without a unanimous vote of everybody on in the council. If one guy said no, then it was out. Outside it was strictly out of bounds. I set off them rules and nobody was going to fucking break them. I just couldn't see how we'd be able to buy our way out of trouble if we let Dooley get knocked off. Dr. Scolette had made his own death sentence by now, but Luciana would not give the order on his own. I called to meet all of the top guys of the council from everywhere. We took over to a deli early in the morning and talked it over for almost six hours. This had to be a secret and not a word of it could get back to Dutch. You got to remember that Schulez has made a lot of friends and this was the first time since Mazzolano was locked out and we had to face up to the unanimous decision of this kind. The council was either going to work or the whole thing was going to fall apart right then and there. Everybody had a right to talk and everybody wanted to talk. But the folk was strictly Sicilian. Lansky made the point very clear and according to the way I expressed it out in Chicago more than three years before I had only one vote period. Luciano continues. During the meet, Lansky took me aside and he said, Charlie, your Jewish concierge, I want to remind you of something. Right now, Scholes is your cover. 
If that is eliminated, you're gonna stand out like a naked guy who just lost his fucking clothes. The way Legada and the rest of them guys have been screaming about you, it's 10 to 1 they'll be after you next. The way he said it to me, I literally shivered. The only trouble was, things had gone too fucking far. I realized we had to get rid of the Dutchman. And that I had to think about everyone being snaked, not just my fucking self. We only took one vote and nobody disagreed. The contract to murder Dutch scholars was given to Charlie, the bug workman, a killer who for some years had been one of Luciano's most reliable chauffeurs and bodyguards. On the night of October 23rd, 1933, Scholes went to his favourite hangout, the Palace Chop House and Davin in New York. With him were two bodyguards, Abby Landiao and Bernard Louis Rosegrans, and his widows of numbers, Ababadaba Berman. Later in the evening, as they sat around the table in the back room, Dutch scholars rose to go to the men's room. A moment later, the tavern door opened and Bog's workman and the second killer, never identified, entered, walked to the rear and began shooting. Bang, bang, bang. Landro and Rosigran and Berman were shot down in the fully laid. All died. Workman stood in the middle of the room looking for the main target. He noticed the men's room door, walked to it, pulled it open. Dutch was standing at the toilet, pissing. Calmly and unhurriedly, Workman aimed precisely, shot the Dutchman once, then turned and walked rapidly out of the tavern. The carnage left behind was the bloodiest since the 1929 St. Valentine's Massacre in Chicago that was infiltrated by Al Capone. Mortally wounded, Toscolas managed to stagger into the main room before collapsing. He lingered for the day, never telling who had shot him, never revealing any of his secrets. In his final hours, he accepted the last rites of a Roman Catholic church. More than six years later, Dutch Kuller's killer, Charlie Workman, was arrested and tried for the murder. In the middle of the trial, he suddenly changed his plea to guilty and received a life sentence. 
freed and paroled in 1964, he became in his last years through the intercession of Tommy Lucchese, a notorious salesman in the New York's Garmic districts. Luciano said, Sometimes I think okaying the killing of the Dutchman was one of the biggest mistakes I ever made. It still tears me up to this day that I had to kill the friend, former friend like that. But I didn't have no fucking choice. The way he was heading. But look what happened. Once the Dutchman was dead, just like Lansky predicted, I was out in the open, as naked as a fucking baby, and everybody had been after Dutch come looking for me. I knew that I was a fucking dead man. Luciano says, Even after the prohibition was dumped, I was running one of the biggest businesses in the world. We was in a hundred different things, legit or illegit. If you add it up all, we, I mean the guys all over the country, we was doing a business that was grossing maybe a couple of billion dollars a year. Back then that might come to trillion dollars nowadays. I was like the head of that big company as the boss of all bosses. But as a guy, a lot of people came to for advice. A guy everyone expected in on the big decisions. But there was no way I know what was going on everywhere all the time. I'm not a fucking computer, man. Luciano continues. Take General Motors. Does the president of the company know what every fucking car salesman is doing and saying? Does he even know half the time what's going on right outside his own fucking even office? People are running around doing and selling things and telling other people they're representing General Motors. The president at the top, a guy like Alfred Solan in them years, don't know a damn thing about it. He don't know even to get blamed when things go wrong. But with me and my outfit, whether I knew what was going on or not, everyone blamed me for anything and fucking everything. Luciano continues, During them years, there was a lot of different guys under their lieutenants who had their own things going for them outside of the junk, the drugs and narcotics. The one sideline that bothered me most of fucking all was the prostitution. But I was like the president of the General Motors. I could keep tabs on what every guy was doing on his own. There was guys going around like little Dave Bitole and Tommy Benchole and Ralph Ligorea who had been with us through the whole year and they started trying to organize the horse. They were telling the madams and the broads, Charlie Lucky Luciano wants you to do this. And remember, this has Charlie Lucky okay. Things like that. Before you knew it, they was running a whole strings of whorehouses in New York. And I'm supposed to be the boss.
If I had been the boss of General Motors, I could have fired them guys when I heard about it. But how could I fire Pitolo or Penocachilo or the list of them guys? They were too valuable to me. They had been with me for a long time and they always been loyal. When the booze business was killed off, they looked for a way to make dough. What was I supposed to do? Tell them they had to starve? Or kill them? What I did was tell them to cut out all that crap. If they wanted to run hoes, that was their business. But I don't want no part of that shit. I ordered them to stop telling people that Charlie Lucky, me, was behind it. Because I would not fucking behind it. I made it an order. Maybe, looking back at it now, I should have stepped on them hard. But I didn't have time. I didn't figure they are going to keep going after. If I told them to stop, it wasn't too late that I realized what had been going on right under my fucking nose. Believe it or not, the first real facts and figures I ever got actually were for Tom Dewey. If anyone ever stopped to think about it right, they have realized that to a Sicilian boss, a guy in the cat house racket, the whole house racket, was the lowest of the fucking low. But nobody ever bothered to analyze it that way. And nobody gave a fucking damn. Luciana had been arrested many times over the years. But after 1916, no arrest had been other than a minor or temporary inconvenience. After his 1923 arrest by the Federal Nicotis agents, he had never believed that the shadow of the penitentiary could cloud his future. His only fear, he said, if he had anything at all, was of the guns of his enemies among his own kind. His business flourished. He assumed that there would be no interruptions. If Ligada and Valentine went on a rampage against Costello slot machines, well, Huey Long in Luciana had an unsustainable desire for them and it was a simple matter to ship them to New Orleans. During the summer of 1935, Luciana had become his habit, journeyed north with society friends to watch the horses run at Saligotto and to watch these friends gamble away the money at the tables in which he had a major interest, Luciana says. It was kind of a joke. They was in Saratoga. The table's going full steam. The money right out in the open. And nobody doing nothing to stop it. Albany was only about 60 miles away. In the daytime, Governor Lehman's whole clan staff was screaming about gambling the underworld. How we all ought to be closing down, but at night those same climb busters were in Saratoka 
gambling like every fucker else. It was no different later on when Dewey got to be governor and was bragging about how he blocked the lackeys and threw all the lacketeers in jail. Sarah got to keep operating just like before. Nobody moved a finger to stop it. But Luciano's reign as king of the underworld was not so secure as he believed in the waning months of 1935 as Lansky had predicted with the murder of Dutch scholars. Luciana now had become the target of Dewey but it was no simple thing to hit that target. To know that Luciano was the boss of the rackets was one thing to get the proof, enough proof to send him to jail was something else again. And he had often said Luciano had to build his empire on a corporate model. And by the mid-thirties there were layers upon layers between him and the actual perpetration of crimes. There was always someone else, never Luciano or any of his closest associates, just above the man doing questions. Nobody seemed able to point directly to Luciano and say, I took my orders from Lucky Luciano. I gave money to Lucky Luciano. Luciano was the boss. The public knew it. The law knew it, but where was the evidence that would stand up in court? To be continued.